Hey, thanks for coming back to part two of our interview with my good friend, Mark Osgeist. And in this episode, we're going to talk hunting. We're going to talk about his new mission. We're going to take some questions. But first, let's get right back into that hair-raising description of his 13 hours in Benghazi. Right on the mark. Episode 6, Part 2 of 2, featuring Benghazi hero Mark Osgeist. Recorded May of 2021. Starts right now. He has hunted all across America and around the world. Rifle, pistol, shotgun, crossbow, compound, traditional. He uses them all. He's an outfitter, an award-winning outdoor television host, and founder of America's only organization fighting to protect every hunter's lifestyle. He's brash. He's bold. He's humorous and a bit hot-headed. But when it comes to all things God, family, country, and hunting... He's Keith Mark, and he's right on the mark. Okay, welcome back, and boy, I'll tell you what, I'm on the edge of my seat. I hope you guys are as well. We're talking to true American hero Mark Osgeist, and um, Mark has just gotten us uh, into the start of the 13-hour saga that he and his friends so adequately told in the book 13 Hours and then the movie by its same name. And, Mark, I don't want you to tell us the whole 13 Hours because I think uh, everybody that's listening sure ought to get that book and watch that movie. But I do want you to touch on just a couple of little points in there from stories that you've shared with me. Um, so during the initial attack, I just want you to tell the folks um, how up close and personal this actually was once – Everything went on over at the consulate. The boys came back from the consulate. And I mean, all that. And I think that's so incredibly Mm -hmm. intense that let them just watch it in the movie or read the book. But when you were on the ground there uh, defending the annex, when the initial wave came, just just take our listeners through that initial onslaught and exactly where you were and what you did and how up and close and personal it was. Our compound had a, I don't know, probably about a nine or 10 foot wall around it. Um, we had a back gate that was on our eastern wall. The front gate was on our, uh, southern wall. And, uh, so I was on the north or the, uh, I, yeah, I was on the northeastern side, right? Just in between the, the rear gate was to my right. Um, and we could see movement. You could hear cars pulling up and, uh, we started seeing movement of 15, 20 guys somewhere around there. Uh, and, you know, lucky for us, we had technology on our side. We had NVGs, we had some infrared lasers and, uh, you know, we could identify targets as they're moving up. And, um, TIG was coming over to my position. Tonto and DB were on one of the elevated, in an elevated position on the top of a rooftop. And we, at that point, we were just kind of identifying where each of us saw targets. We'd point our lasers. You know, the guys, the bad guys can't see the lasers unless they have uh, night vision devices or something like that. So, and we knew that they didn't have that kind of stuff, or at least we were pretty much banking on it. But uh, Tonto and DB were up top, and we were all just identifying where we saw targets. And um, we had sp- uh, spotlights or floodlights, not spotlights. We had floodlights on the outside of our walls that kind of covered out to about 30 yards, uh, 20, 30 yards out in from the wall and you know our thought process i mean kind of even without saying it was we were just going to let them get as close as they wanted think they uh 
you know, let them scoot up and get close and then kind of like Concord, you know, let's wait till we see the whites of their eyes and we were going to unload on them. And uh, during that time, Tig was moving over and what really kind of started it was a guy had kind of got up close and was through a IED over the wall. And when it landed, it landed in between me and Tig. Luckily, it didn't have any shrapnel. It blew up. And that was really kind of what uh, in, initiated that first uh, assault onto us. And, you know, we just kind of started picking them off like prairie dogs. Uh, I thought I was back home uh, sitting on my granddad's place, just shooting whatever came up, whatever stuck its head up. And I know you're a hunter. And so your hunting skills came into play there. And um, prairie dogs uh, got <laughs> dropped all around, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it lasted maybe, you know, five to seven minutes, somewhere around there, maybe 10 at most. I mean, it was pretty short lived. Uh, I think, you know, those, the, the militia that was assaulting us, the militia's name was Ansar al Sharia. And I think they thought they were going to come into our area the same as they did over at the consulate. Uh, you know, but as I've told you many a time, I mean, the sheepdogs protecting the annex had a few more teeth in their mouth than uh, than what was over uh, at the consulate. I think the consulate, great guys, wasn't the guys that were there that was the problem as much as it was uh, the assets that they were given to help protect the ambassador on that big of an area. So without getting into any of the other particulars of that fateful evening, uh, those 13 hours, for you and for some of your close friends there, it really boiled down to about the last three minutes. Yeah, I did. I mean, uh, myself, Ty, and Glenn. Glenn was the team leader from our sister team up in Tripoli. Um, they were able to obtain a or gain access to a civilian aircraft and made their way down and had made their way there. It was about 5 o'clock in the morning, and, uh, um, you know, it was uh, – that's when the last firefight occurred, and this really told you the level of sophistication of this militia and their capability because it was a very complex attack. I mean, I, you know, the first couple attacks that they made, three, and I think it was they hadn't gotten set up. They hadn't, uh, you know, they thought it was going to be an easy push, just like at the consulate, but uh, they came in at us with RPGs, belt-fed machine guns, AKs, and indirect fire, which is like artillery and mortars. And they dropped uh, some mortars in on us, and they had us dead to rights. And, you know, it, I mean, four mortars hit within about two minutes, and they hit three of those mortars hit the rooftop. That doesn't happen unless you're good at what you do. Um, anybody out there that's a mortarman knows kind of how hard that is to do that on get your first target, get your first rounds on target. So what's the killing ratio of those mortars that hit the roof there in the last two or three minutes? Um, 80, they were 81 millimeter mortars from everything, looking at the tail fins, because I had seen some pictures uh, from, I think it was ABC was the group that had first, the news group that got over there first, uh, looking at the tail fins of those things that were left. It was, they looked like French 81s and uh, the French 81 has a kill radius basically around 131 feet. So if you're within 131 feet of that, you have about a 90, being a kill radius, you have about a 98% chance of dying. And how, how many of those rounds went off with you inside that radius? Uh, three of them did. Well, 
you could actually say all four did. The first one hit the outer wall, which was about, um, oh, probably 90, maybe 90 feet away. And then by the top to the rooftop. So that one was real close. I was on the outer edges of that one, but the other three were within about 15 to 17 feet of me. Um, and what kind of damage did those rooftop mortars do right there at the end? Um, well, the first one went off and uh, about severed my arm off, uh, my left arm. Um, that's the one that killed Ty. Uh, the second one went off and it landed right, in, right just about in front of Glenn and killed him. And I got shrapnel from that one as well. And then the third one landed again. It just they were kind of like a little line almost coming back from the edge of the roof. About dropped about 15, uh, probably 12 feet and then another seven feet after that. So they were right there in a line, but they were all within 15 to 17 feet to my right. And, uh, I don't know. I ended up having shrapnel in my neck and four or five pieces of shrapnel in my chest. I still have about, I think I got three pieces of metal still there up and down both legs and arms. Uh, my left arm was about blown off about six inches above the uh, wrist and, uh, um, about 20, I think we counted 20 to 25 holes total. My gosh. Well, some divine intervention in there for you, but you sure lost uh, uh, some good friends and comrades that morning. Yeah, you know, it was. Um, you know, and a lot of people you bring up the divine intervention, you know, I, I call it our seventh man. And, uh, you know, we've had a, there was there was too many things that happened that night that were that were able to allow us to save the 20 some odd people that were there that we did save, um, and get them back home to their families without, uh, without the grace of, the, of God. And, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me about my faith because they're like, well, you know, was that something that was, uh, after Benghazi? And I, you know, I was born, um, born and raised as a Christian Methodist church, sang in the church choir. Had a wonderful youth pastor and his wife who were probably really instrumental in, uh, in build, giving me that foundation in my relationship with the Lord. Um, but you know, it's, uh, I've seen a lot of people killed in the name of religion. And I think there's a difference between religion and a relationship with the Lord. Uh, religion is a man-made thing and, and that relationship with Jesus Christ and the Lord is something that is personal that each one of us has or should have. And, uh, the difference was after being before Benghazi, I probably wasn't as I tried to find ways to live my life that with my relationship with the Lord, but that wasn't the focus. And uh, I mean, I'm a hard headed German uh, Marine and uh, took the Lord blowing me up three times to get my attention. Wow. Well, when we come back, um, I want to talk to you about how the events of uh Benghazi in those 13 hours has led you to the ministry that you're now involved with. So stay tuned. We're going to have more with American hero Mark Osgeist. Right on the Mark is brought to you in part by Hunter Nation. Hunter Nation defends all of our traditional American values, God, family, country, conservation, and our hunting lifestyle. Join the unified voice of the American hunter by visiting HunterNation.org today. Okay, Mark, um, thanks for joining us. And, you know, boy, I tell you what, uh, um, I really needed a break after you were telling the uh, Benghazi story. I mean, I've heard it many times, but it is uh, honestly, I mean, it is harrowing. 
Um, and it's, it's just unbelievable what you went through, but that's led you to where you are now. Um, so to speak, um, tell us about the current ministry that you're involved in and the things and the projects that you're involved in that allows you to give back. Um, well, you know, and it was almost immediately, I mean, there was a lot of things that took place with, uh, my injuries, getting back from Germany, from Libya to, you know, was first it was into Tripoli where I had my first life saving, uh, surgery by a Libyan, by Libyan doctors in a Libyan hospital. From there to Germany was in Germany for a few days until I could get, they could get me stabilized. Um, and then came back to the U S and, uh, you know, through that process as private security contractors, um, we don't have the resources for support like the military does. Um, I mean, basically, I'm an independent contractor for the U.S. government. Now, granted, I understand, I you know, I, I take that, and I understood that when I took the job. But uh, what I did experience, and me and my family experienced, is... Um, what we have for support is a workman's comp policy. And, you know, you working with uh, your private job as dealing with workman's comp know how wonderful and how supportive they are of uh, of those that, you know, even those that are working on a day-to-day basis here in America. It's a fight every day. Exactly. Um, I think that fight I had with workman's comp was probably as hard as it was with in Benghazi. Wow. At least I knew where the guy, the bad guys were when, uh, when I was in Benghazi. But, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that we have, because there has been a significant amount of contractors, both security and others, that have worked overseas in the last 20 years um, and continue to work. You know, we've got 271-ish uh, diplomatic facilities around the world, and there are military personnel, there are U.S. government employees, and there are also U.S. citizens who are contracted to work at these uh, facilities for a lot of different jobs. And um, unfortunately, the majority of those contractors don't have the support. If they get severely injured or killed, their families don't have that because we don't have those resources like the military. I didn't know, really, I didn't have any personal contact with any of the guys that I'd met before, other than Tonto, we had met a couple of times at a training evolution. But other than that, I never worked with any of the guys I was with. So obviously my families, my family and their families never had any contact. And, you know, we struggled a lot. We didn't get our first workman's comp check until after the first of the year into 2013. And, uh, as a contractor, I only got paid when my feet were in the country I was contracted to work in. So this, September 12th was my last payday. Wow. So and, through all these struggles, Oz, um, and, and your own family struggles and your conversations with your other friends that were injured then, that led you to a revelation of how you could actually give back and help other people in this cir- circumstance. Tell us about that. Well, and that's, that's me and my wife. I think I, when I first mentioned it, the thought first came into my mind. I was still in the hospital in, uh, at Walter Reed down in, uh, DC. And, you know, I knew I wanted to help others. And it was that, again, I think it's that sense of selfless service. Um, but we, we ended up uh, starting an organization called Shadow Warriors Project. 
And what we do, uh, our primary and our, our foundation was to help those who get killed or injured um, overseas in combat-related injuries and make sure those families are taken care of and they are because what we found out through our experience is that first three months is really the most difficult because your life changes 100% if you can't go back to work or you're so severely injured as I was. Um, the pay stops, there was no one there to help with the workman's comp process, how that works, going through Department of Labor, all of that, you know. Um, and so we decided to help fill that void. And uh, we try to make sure that a family who is killed or severely injured where the husband can't go back to work their first three months of uh Bills covering those big ones, you know, especially the house, keeping the lights on, keeping the heat going, car payments, that kind of stuff, making sure they have that because their income stream has just changed dramatically. I mean, it went from, you know, Grant, as a contractor, I made good money. I mean, I was paid somewhere around $700 a day, um, but then it was gone. And, you know, my wife didn't work at that time because she wanted to stay home and take care of the kids. So we went from making money to not. And thank goodness for us is every month, you know, people would reach out and help and make sure that we we were able to make those bills. So we wanted to continue that. And that's kind of what our foundation was built upon starting out. What a big heart. Uh, And so Shadow Warriors is a not-for-profit? It is. It is. It's a not-for-profit. And it relies 100% on the generosity of people that know your mission, that contribute to Shadow Warriors to allow you to go out and help people just like yourself that have risked everything for this country and got injured. Is that right? Yeah, it is. You know, it's, it is that. It's the, uh, you know, their, their compassion to help those that continue to serve those that continue to want to serve their country in other aspects other than the military. So those, um, those people that are listening right now that have been touched by your story, Mark, and how you got hurt and how you and your family struggled until you finally got a check, and then knowing that you're now through Shadow Warriors alleviating a lot of those problems and stresses on families that are facing just terrible times, how do they reach out to you so they can donate and help Shadow Warriors in your mission? Um, the best way to do that is go to shadowwarriorsproject.org is our website. Um, and if you go there, you can go in and donate and you can read more about us. You can find out what we're doing because we've actually expanded over uh, this last year. Uh, about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, I got a service dog. Um, her name is Roan, named after Tyrone Woods, who got killed next to me. And... Uh, She's really made a big difference in my life. Um, you know, it's she's a service mobility dog. She helps me get out, get around, be uh, be more able to be in the public. Um, and so we started providing service dogs initially for contractors, and we spread that out to also to our military veterans, our brothers and sisters who out who are out there that have given so much as well. And I know just recently, Mark, and that you've spent a lot of time with. Um, 
veterans and contractors that have been injured with the dog project. And you were telling me last week about some of the fantastic successes that you've had with these people with, um, you know, post-traumatic stress and so on through this dog project. And I think uh, for the next couple of weeks, you're actually going to be out of the country uh, working with this exact same project, right? Yeah, uh, we have a donor that was down in Lubbock, Texas. Um, we call her Nana. Her name is Margaret. She, uh, her son had gotten a dog, um, from Baden K9, which is where I got my dog. Uh, at least that's the breeder. Um, special operations wounded warrior is the one who donated her to me, but, um, she has built us a facility down in Lubbock because she saw the change in her, her grandson. Uh, her grandson was pretty much, uh, on a downward spiral from his time in, uh, overseas and it just, he got a dog and it changed his life. So she has built a facility, um, funded a facility for us down in Lubbock, Texas. Um, that, uh, we are working with them. Um, we're renting the facility from them and uh, working together to bring veterans in and we're doing some what we're calling i call it canine therapy i got a lot of doctors out there and therapists that say you can't you're not a therapist so you can't uh, call it therapy i'm like well i've been through enough therapy and have self-induced therapy i can call myself a therapist unbelievable well if you're listening shadowwarriorsproject.org shadowwarriorsproject.org go there this surely has touched your heart like it's touched mine flat out I'm asking you give to shadowwarriorsproject.org so Mark and his wife Crystal can continue this mission that they're doing such great work with um, with people that have really risked it all so we can do what we do Mark stay tuned because we're going to Change gears and talk about uh, your faith a little bit more, and then uh, we're going to tell some hunting stories. So uh, stay tuned, and we'll be back with Mark Ozgeist. Do you have the spirit of the wild? If so, check out TedNugent.com for one-stop shopping for concert updates, hunting opportunities with Ted's sunrise safaris, autograph swag, Ted's latest news, and anything, Ted. Visit TedNugent.com. You know, Mark, uh, my favorite picture of you as civilian, Mark Osgeist, is the one where you have that big uh, black uh, charcoal gray wolf over your shoulders. Uh, man, tell, tell me that story. Um, you know, I was up in the Northwest Territories in Canada, about 100 miles south of the Arctic Circle, um, with uh, and. Well, and I was with one of our good friends. Yeah, you can can say it, Mark. You can. (laughs) Well, I was going to say it no matter what, but uh, I was with you know it's it's I was with one of our good friends or two of our good friends really, Don and Eric Trump. June, it was Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, and uh, I was the first time I got to meet his son, Donald Trump Jr. the third. But uh, it was uh, it was an amazing hunt. That, uh, they were out hunting, uh, grass eaters <laughs> when I was back at the cabin. And when I say cabin, um, it was about 12 feet, maybe 15 feet wide by about maybe at best 20 feet long. And there were six of us that lived, that slept in there. It had no, uh, running water, didn't have uh, electricity, um, anything like that. So, uh, I mean, it wasn't living up the lifestyle. Uh, that's the one thing that's really impressed me about uh, the Trump family 
especially the boys there that they are, they're true hunters. They're true outdoorsmen. Um, but, uh, they were out, uh, hunting caribou, trying to get one. And, uh, they were, like I said, eating grass, they were hunting grass eaters and I was fixing dinner. Um, it's about nine o'clock at night. As you know, up that far north, uh, the sun doesn't really set much at all, especially in, uh, you know, around July, August time period. I think it was in mid August. And, uh, the guide that was with me was out front and he says, Hey, I saw it. There's a wolf. And I mean, I would have much rather hunted anything that's a predator than hunting, um, <laughs> grass eaters by some myself. I mean, I love eating grass eaters, but, uh, that challenge of, getting something that has teeth that can hurt you is, is a whole nother story. So of course <laughs> <laughs> I ran outside and I looked through the scope and about a mile away, there was a big male wolf and a female. And, uh, my first reaction was heck with dinner. I ran back in, grabbed my rifle and started running in the direction of that wolf because about the same time, the wolf left that position and was running towards me is what I saw last in the scope. So I figure I'm going to go try to meet it before it gets to our camp. Um, and I ran about 150 yards and, uh, I was pretty winded and I'm sitting there and I'm looking for it. I'm scanning across the ground and through the uh, sage, it's not sagebrush, but it's kind of like a scrub oak. And I see some movement. So I take off running that direction again and, uh, run about another 100, 150 yards and me and this wolf come across each other in the middle of, uh, about 70 yards. I think it was, um, this opening, uh, the wolf came across that side. I came out immediately dropped to a knee and leveled off my rifle and the wolf froze. I think it's the first time the wolf ever saw a human being. He didn't know what he was going to come after, um, or what it was coming after. So, uh, I'm sitting there trying to get a beat on this wolf, you know, and I mean, I'm breathing like I'm out of shape, which I was out of shape. And I mean, my scope's going like this and, uh, the wolf started to take off and it went back behind some scrub, some, some more scrub oak and come back around. And right as it come around, I come off my scope and howled and uh, it froze. And I was just got my breathing under control and was getting ready to pull the trigger when it started to take off. So I just moved it to its nose, pulled the trigger put one through its front shoulder, just behind its front shoulder at an angle, blew out the far shoulder and uh, pretty much went right through the heart when we uh, gutted it and figured that out and uh, dropped it right there. Wow. What a story. And the best part of it was I got the whole thing on camera too, because we had a cameraman that was with us to film this hunt because the hunt was all about raising money for Shadow Warriors Project. Um, that's why I, Don and Eric came is to help make it a little bit more fun and more lucrative for Shadow Warriors, helping us out. Yeah, I saw the footage and it's good, but not as good if my sidekick Josh Ishmilcam had filmed it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great, that is a great story, Mark. Stay tuned and we'll be back with Mark Ozgeist. This segment of Right on the Mark is brought to you by Mossy Oak. At Mossy Oak, a life outdoors is in your DNA. Shop their incredible pattern selection and more at mossyoak.com. Mossy Oak, feed your obsession. Hey, w- welcome back uh, to the podcast. We're with Mark Oz, guys. Hey, Mark, I'm going to bring my producer, uh, Tim Lamar, in. We've got uh, several people listening uh, today, and they've texted in some questions. So, uh, hey, Tim, are you there, Tim? 
I am here. All right, Tim, uh, fire away. I love this because uh, Mark has absolutely no idea, neither do I, but uh, let's put him on the spot. <laughs> fire a question away. We, Mark, what's your favorite animal to hunt? Um, well, so far it's been, it, it, it's been the wolf. I mean, that whole time up there, I think during that week, I think we were up there for about 10 days, uh, and, uh, we saw about nine wolves and, uh, the day before there was a white wolf that would stalk, had been stalking one of our other hunters. Wow. And uh, got within about 60 yards of him before uh, he got, no- they noticed him and uh, they shot at it. The hunter shot a little high because he was shooting downhill and the wolf was in a cross position. Um, and I think that was one reason why I was really interested in getting that wolf is uh, when it started coming towards us, I figured it must be part of a bigger pack that uh, had been uh, very curious about what we were doing in his territory. Wow. Any other questions? Yeah. Is there a best caliber for personal defense? What would be your choice for a run-of-the-mill, non-military, regular Joe? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm interested with this one. Um, you know, honestly, I think from from a handgun aspect, uh, the 9 mil. And the reason for that is today's technology with uh, those people out there that are making the ammo now for us civilians, they are doing it in ways that, uh, you know, are a little bit past. They've got the technology down to far exceed the capabilities of what used to be the old ball ammunition or the traditional hollow point. And the other thing is, is uh, it's so I've got a set of rules in my life. Rule number one, obviously, is God, family, country, core. Um the second is anything that's worth shooting once is worth shooting at least twice because ammo's free <laughs> and life isn't. So uh, the nine mil actually, from a pistol standpoint, allows you one to carry a larger capacity, and it also allows you to get that second and third and fourth round on target. Uh, you know, just in case that target keeps coming, wow. that threat keeps coming. Love it, Tim. Did you have one weapon or a favorite weapon when you were in service while in combat? What was your go-to? Um, well, if I had the choice of any weapon on September 11th and 12th, it would have been a Spectre gunship. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take two of those if you're ordering. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, an F-16 or F-15 with uh, with a JDAM on it, which is a uh, thousand pound bomb that uh, is laser guided to come in. Okay, I'll but, take one uh, of those as well. <laughs> from a personal weapon standpoint, um, honestly, uh, you know, I want the gun that's going to work when I pull the trigger. And you know, the uh, the the market out there this day and age with um, how to put it, everyone else likes to call them assault rifles, but they're not assault rifles because they're semi-automatic rifles that, uh, like the, the, you know, the, what the military has is the M4, um, the AR-15 is the civilian model of that is there's so many companies out there that make just tremendous firearms. Um, currently what I carry is, uh, or I have, um, is six hours, uh, MCX, and uh, it is a wonderful weapon that uh, has a lot of possibilities. Awesome. Do you have any advice for either a new or a veteran shooter? Just in general, how do you improve your target, your your marksmanship? Um, 
I guess for especially for new shooters, uh, and if you've ever shot before, um, I unless you've been trained by a professional instructor, I would forget everything that Grandpa taught you, and I would focus on a few things. One is sight alignment, sight picture, and trigger squeeze. And number two is crawl, walk, run. I mean, what's going to make you a good shooter is that dry fire that you can do. Um, it doesn't have to do with firing live ammo. It is going through the motions of where do you keep that weapon and how are you going to employ it? And have you thought through those scenarios? And when you do that, again, going back to, you know, crawl, walk, run is Go through your mind about how that scenario would work, and then just as something as simple as drawing, the first thing is your grip, bringing it out of the holster, coming here, and moving it forward until you got side alignment, side picture, and trigger squeeze. Uh, that is going to be the things that make you an excellent shooter more than anything else you can do. Wow. Stay tuned. We're going to have more of Mark Guys when we come back. Great tip, Saws. This segment of Right on the Mark is brought to you by McMillan River Adventures. McMillan River Adventures offers the Yukon's absolute best in grizzly, sheep, elk, and monster moose hunting amidst some of God's most beautiful settings. An MRA adventure should be on everyone's bucket list. Visit MRA.com today to learn more and to book your adventure. All right, Mark, uh, welcome back. And I do want to... Talk about uh, some hunting stuff, which uh, I know you're a hunter, and you and I have spent a lot of time in the field together. Um, but before we leave the uh, topic of your faith and your ministry, I, I want you to tell a, a story that I actually I witnessed. Uh, you and I and your wife, Crystal, we were having uh, supper one evening in Denver, and a lady came in, and I think you'll remember this as I start telling this, um, and she said, are, are you, uh, Mark, Mark Oz guys from, uh, Benghazi? And you said, yes, ma'am. And then she proceeded to ask you if you were scared during that 13 hours. And, um, I, I was taken back and you said, no, ma'am. And, um, do you remember what you told her, Mark? Uh, you know, for the longest time I didn't. And you reminded me of that. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's been a couple years ago now, but, um, I do remember that, you know, we were having uh, that get together and that lady came up and, you know, I said she'd asked me about Benghazi and everybody stopped and started listening. I could tell all the tables around us started got quiet and were listening. She asked me, just like I said, she said, were you scared that night? And uh, I said, no, because I'm immortal. Um, I probably said that it was a little bit of my Marine cockiness to me, but uh Really what the cockiness comes from is my faith with, uh, with the Lord and Jesus Christ. Cause, uh, that's, she was like, the look on her face was really kind of, uh, aghast, I guess. Well, and there wasn't a sound in the restaurant when she said, were you scared? And you said, no, ma'am, I, I'm immortal. And like you said, there, there wasn't a sound in that entire restaurant. And do you, after a pause there, you said until God decides otherwise. And I'll tell you what, it, it was really meaningful to me, Mark. Um, and I think everyone in the restaurant, cause you could just hear kind of a sigh come out of everyone. And when you think about that, um, we are all immortal. 
until God decides otherwise. And it's our faith that allows us to go from start to end. And well, I'll tell you what, that was a meaningful event in my life. And I've shared that story many times. I guarantee you everyone in that restaurant did as well. And that's, that's really quite something. Um, but let's talk about hunting. You mentioned it earlier. You shot a few prairie dogs over in Benghazi or something kind of <laughs> like that. But uh, you grew up in a hunting family, right? Um, yeah, I grew up uh, farming and ranching. And so, you know, hunting was all a part of it. Uh, you know, I mean, I can remember at the youngest of age, my grandfather, that's where I really did any, a lot of shooting was at my grandfather's place. Uh, you know, he had, um, I think it was upwards of 5,000 acres. Some of it was in corn. A lot of it was in alfalfa. And then it was a lot of it was, uh, it was high plain. I mean, we live in a high plains desert. So it was, uh, buffalo grass and uh we ran cattle out there and one of the biggest you know things that injures cattle and horses is uh prairie dog towns and you know if you don't take care of them you'll have a three to five acres of prairie dogs and your cattle go through there or horses go through there and they step in one of the holes and break an ankle break a leg and uh that cost the, uh, the farmers and ranchers dearly. So my grandfather would put me and my brother, he's two years older than me, up on uh, up on a uh, little hill overlooking him. And uh, he'd give us a box of ammo and say, uh, I want to be able to count as many dead prairie dogs as I give you rounds. You um, I don't think that I was ever able to uh, truly uh, fulfill that desire of his, but he set the bar high and said, this is the standard, try to reach it. And it was a challenge. So me being as competitive as I was between that challenge and my brother, I had to try to do better than my older brother, right? Right. Well, that's that's the epitome of aim small, miss small. And I'm pretty confident that yeah. there were several of the militia members over there in Benghazi that uh, regretted you had such uh, training. But, you know, I think you and I of elk and antelope and turkey and alligator and <laughs> we've done a lot of hunting together but one story that uh i would like you to share i'll share and you can chime in liberally uh we were uh, down in florida in one of those big swamp buggies carrying ar's uh pig hunting and i'd never done it and i don't think you had at the time and my son zach was with us and and the guy said here's how it's going to go down you know we're just going to rip through these swamps and when we see you know hogs hey just let them have it so away we went, and the guy that was driving the swamp buggy saw the hogs, and he goes, ah, there's a pack of hogs, you know. And about the time I see them, and there was about six of them running uh, up in front of us, and by the time I recognized the targets, and by the time I lifted the gun to my shoulder, Marcos guys had already cracked off about five pigs. I tell you, if you want to have a blast, if you want to, I mean, there's very few things. I love hunting. But that was, that took it, that was just completely different. I mean, you're, it's kind of some of that adrenaline rush. You're on one of the big swamp buggies, which basically is a monster truck. But there's no truck bed. It's just a flat platform with aircraft, basically like racing seats in it. You're strapped to those and the drivers, they're driving and it goes through everything. I mean, you're going over the palmetto trees, just chasing <laughs> hogs and, and, and shooting everything. Every every one of them. Yeah, you did too. Um, and I, I might have <laughs> shot one. I think we killed about twenty one hogs that day. No, I'm between you and Zach. But no, what a trip! And I'll tell you, um, we had a darn near um, 
life-ending event on that same trip. <laughs> Remember that? Uh, yeah, yeah, with uh, some alligators. Yeah, we we uh, with a, with a guy that he wrecked an airboat in a in an infested uh, that swamp that. that damn near pinned Zach under the boat. But we'll leave that story for a for for another day. But uh, you know, um, not really wanting to get into politics with you, but one of the things that has really irritated me lately. Um, is how elected politicians and unelected bureaucrats just keep passing laws and setting policy that are so anti-hunting, and hunters just sit back and, by and large, take it. Does that bother you? Yeah, it does. I mean, and that's, you know, and as you know, I mean, that's why we had these conversations, oh, what, several years ago starting out, and it's what really... Um, I think our conversations and that action or lack of action of hunters is what uh, really got used, um, spun up to start and found Hunter Nation. And, uh, you know, which, I mean, did phenomenal work over uh, over the last election. Um, and really, it's about getting hunters out of the tree stands during November and getting them to the voting booths, um, making it so they can get their voice heard because, I was amazed at how many hunters are not registered to vote. And uh, I think as we started this and you started telling me the numbers, I was just flabbergasted at how many people are, are not willing to, you know, getting that. I mean, I, I understand how important it is to go hunt. And that's part of their, their heritage, their livelihood. I mean, it's generational things that have happened. And, but if we don't, uh, Fight for our rights as hunters. If we don't let our voice be heard, it's not going to be. I mean, and we're, they're going to just step on us. No, I agree with you. And when we saw the numbers, less than half of licensed hunters in America vote. That is absolutely so sad. And, you know, one of my favorite, probably my very favorite picture of you, Mark, as a civilian, is you with this beautiful blackish gray wolf over your shoulders. And, um, you know, I mean, it just, I mean, of course it makes you look like the badass that you are. But for me, because I understand the, the fight that's going on now in the country with regard to the delisting of the, of the wolf and then being able to hunt wolves and in your own state of Colorado and your guys' infinite wisdom, you're going to add more wolves to your ecosystem that didn't even come from here. And then I think about hunters not voting, and that's how that happens. And as we are recording this right now, Hunter Nation, um, with our CEO and president and fearless leader, Luke Hilgeman, has just filed a lawsuit against the DNR in the state of Wisconsin to force the state of Wisconsin to allow a wolf hunt to occur per the language of their statute. But, but again, um, if people don't unite, if hunters don't come together under one banner, we're going to continue, um, to get poor hunting policy across the country. You agree? Yeah, I do. You know, and, and, um, it had, it just, the, what I see on a day-to-day basis, both here in Colorado and uh, across the country, um, is the disregard for what this country was founded on, what I've fought for, what I've had friends die and bleed for, um, and that's for everyone to have a voice. And 
you know, it's, it's, it's so imperative that those who are hunters get out, get registered and get out to vote. I mean, you know, like you said, they had delisted the wolf off of the endangered species list. And, you know, there's other people out there that want to put it back on. Um, there's, I've heard there's rumor that, uh, um, President Joe Biden, uh, is looking at uh, doing that, I think probably by executive order because, you know, we've let that whole idea of executive orders. And I'm not saying that's just left thing. I mean, left and right have thought that that's the way to make business happen in government, but, uh, they, uh, they want to, they don't want to allow that hunt to go in Wisconsin. I mean, because it's obviously allowed the law and the statutes allow it, but no one wants to let it happen because of, I'm not sure why other than personal um, ideology. Well, it's certainly uh, not science and it's certainly not conservation based. And that's why I want to take this second mark, encourage all of our listeners to go to HunterNation.org. If you're a hunter or quite frankly, if you just believe in God, family, country, traditional American values that include controversial things like our constitution and hunting, you need to be a member of Hunter Nation. So go to HunterNation.org and, uh, and lend your voice. Join the grassroots army that's fighting for hunters. Mark, I tell you what, what a great uh, time visiting with you here today. Um, you know, it's always an inspiration to me to talk to you and, uh, thank God I talk to you almost daily. I mean, you're one of the guys that uh, give me the strength to keep fighting even when, you know, the times are tough, uh, which I think, quite frankly, they are right now. But uh, this is not the time for you, me, or anybody listening to give up. This is the time to join the fight, uh, stay engaged, keep doing the things that are perfect, like enjoying your family, praying to our God and our Savior and and uh, living this great hunting lifestyle, but more importantly, to continue to thank and respect guys like yourself that have risked it all and some that gave it all for this greatest country in the world. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon, um, and will you come back again sometime? Oh, definitely, and uh, thank you. I mean, you know, and, and i got to reiterate, if I can, just a little bit on that is, you know, our open spaces are our open spaces, both those that like hunting and those that don't, but without having those open spaces, without having that free range of our, our elk, our deer, all of those animals that have been part of this country for so long um, and making sure that you can be safe in that environment. And that's one of my things with the wolf is uh, wolves kill. I've seen what they do and up close and uh, as you said, that wolf that I got was one that uh, we decided that me and that wolf were going to have a match. And that one ran towards me. So instead of running the other direction, I ran towards it and uh, made sure that uh, it wasn't going to be around to hurt anybody else. So uh, we got to protect everybody in this country from the decisions of some people that just based on uh, on their own whim. So if people want to follow you, Mark, is it just Mark, G-E-I-S-T on Facebook and MarkGeist.com on the web? Yeah, Mark, uh, go to MarkGeist.com on the web. Um, and I've got the hardcover books uh, there for sale. And, uh, you know, unless you're buying a used one, you can't find them anywhere else. And they will be autographed if you buy one off my website uh, or at least autographed by myself. Can't guarantee that uh, the other guys... Uh, 
will have an autograph in them or not. But uh, come there and check it out on what I'm doing, where things are going, both with uh, myself and with my ministry. Um, and just to, uh, if you got any questions. Yeah, I mean, Mark is very accessible. MarkGeist.com. I highly recommend getting one of those uh, Oz-signed, uh, incredible 13-hour books. And don't forget, check out ShadowWarriorProject.org to stay in tune with with uh, Mark's doing with his ministry. And, uh, hey, Mark, thanks again for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. God bless. The views and opinions expressed on Right on the Mark are not necessarily those of our hosts, guests, or sponsors. Right on the Mark is produced at Hunter Nation Studios and is the property of Bow and Arrow Productions, produced in conjunction with BLT Productions. Copyright 2021.